As listeners to this podcast already know, there's a bill before Congress right now called the Music Modernization Act, or MMA. Recently, this bill has faced some challenges, but remains a net positive for the music industry as a whole. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rockstars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. On today's episode, we discuss the changes to the MMA and try to predict the future of the bill. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. Support for the future of what also comes from Marmoset. Marmoset is an independent, full-service music agency that specializes in meticulously curating rare, vintage, and emerging independent artists, bands, and record labels. Learn more at marmosetmusic.com. You're listening to the future of what? I'm talking to David Israelite of the NMPA. David, welcome back to the future of what? Well, thank you for having me back. It's always nice to talk to you. So this time we are doing an update to sort of where we're at with the Music Modernization Act, the MMA. And recently there was sort of a big development. There was a scary moment where it looked like the whole bill was going to be derailed. And then a last minute save. <laughs> so <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Well, Passing legislation, especially in the copyright space, especially in the music space, and especially with the politics of today, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so this is a long path, and there are going to be bumps and diversions and hurdles put in our way. The one that was most recently an issue is that we had to work some things out with the Blackstone Group, which owns CSAC, which owns the Harry Fox Agency, because they were concerned that part of their existing business would not be needed anymore once the bill passed. And so that was a concern to them. And I understand why they were concerned about that. Harry Fox today provides what's known as a matching service to the two largest interactive streaming companies, Spotify and Apple. And once this bill passes, Spotify and Apple and the rest of the digital companies won't need to hire vendors to help them match the sound recordings in their services with the owners of the underlying compositions. That will be done in this new MLC, we're calling it. And so that was a concern for the Blackstone Group. And unfortunately, that spilled over into quite a public back and forth. And once we were able to sit down with the Blackstone Group and with the CSAC leadership privately, we were able to work it out. And I think we all wanted the same thing, which was for this bill to pass and to get all of the benefits from this bill for the songwriters we both care about. And so the bill is going to be amended in a way that both sides feel good about, and we get to move forward now with the Blackstone Group's support of the bill, which we think will be a big boost to get us across the finish line. And so I really appreciate the efforts of John Josephson, the CEO and chairman of CSAC, who had to deal with a lot of pressures and was able to help navigate through that in a way that's going to let us move forward together. And, uh, and so I, I thank him for that. 
So you can help us understand a little bit because, you know, some of this legislative stuff gets kind of in the weeds for those of us who are, you know, just reading about it and normal musicians who are trying to figure out how this is going to affect their lives. So, I mean, the way it was written originally, the MLC was going to be a body that was just created to collect mechanical royalties from streaming services like Spotify and Apple, et cetera. And now with this amendment, they modified it a bit to just say that it's only collecting those streaming mechanical royalties. Is that correct? So it is a confusing issue. And I I think the way you said it is correct. Just to go back to the negotiation with the digital media companies, this was always supposed to be a solution for the Section 115 mechanical licensing problem. Uh, We have a problem in this country in that the interactive streamers don't have a place to get a blanket license. It's a compulsory license under the law, but there's no place to really get it other than tracking down every fractional owner of what might be a 50 million song library. And that's what led to the litigations, and that's what led to a lot of money not getting to the right owners. And it was just a broken system. And so the goal of of the legislation was that we would help fix that problem. And in exchange for fixing it, the digital companies would give the songwriting and publishing community a lot of things that we wanted. That was the basic trade. While we were negotiating the bill, the digital companies brought up that if we're going to build this new entity that can license mechanicals, there's no reason why it shouldn't be available as a vendor to help administer other deals that go outside the mechanical space. A lot of deals involve other rights, whether they be synchronization or lyric or performance. And it was agreed while we were writing the bill that as long as the parties to a private deal were willing to pay the costs, that they could hire the MLC to help administer other types of deals. What we've agreed to now is that the MLC will stay in its lane. It will only be dealing with the mechanical royalties and not be eligible as an outside vendor to be hired to do other types of deals. And companies like the Harry Fox Agency who are in that space will compete with any other private vendor that wants to be in that space, but the MLC will not be a potential competitor to that type of a service. And the reason why we're so comfortable with that, quite honestly, is because even if the MLC were to provide that type of service, they would have had to hire vendors too. The MLC is going to be mostly a skeleton type organization. It's not going to do its own matching. It's going to be relying on outside vendors. And so we didn't think it was any problem to narrow the scope of what the MLC was going to do to just the purpose of the bill. And that was enough to get the Blackstone Group and the CSAC comfortable that for that part of its business, it wasn't going to be impacted in a negative way. And and there was the compromise. And so the publishers and writers were felt very good about that. And, and that was enough to get Blackstone and CSAC back in the family and working toward the same goal of passing this bill. It's so funny because, you know, when you explain it, it's like, wow, it's I don't know how this escaped the bounds because that really sounds like something you could just talk about. You guys could just have negotiated behind closed doors and everyone would have been happy and no one would have known, any, you know, any of the wiser. Well, you know, honestly, I think that's a fair comment. And I, I wish we could go back in time and, and, and tackle <laughs> this in a different way. It, it did get fairly heated and very public, which I didn't like. Right. But we're through that part now. Yeah. And I think the wounds are healed or are healing. And now we can join together and move forward and get this bill passed. And I think once we look back on this, it'll just be a blip on the radar screen. And I don't think there'll be any hard feelings. Uh, There shouldn't be from anyone. No, it seems like everybody's getting what they want, which is kind of perfect. I don't know if this is something that's been discussed, but 
You know, sound exchange is the body that was created to administer the performance side of master use streaming royalties. And when they were created, they were created with this directive to pay 50% to the artist and 50% to the label directly, or 45% to the featured artist and 5% to the performing. You know, we don't have to get into the weeds on that. (laughs) But this bill, the MLC is not, at this time, directed to split up monies in any particular way. Was that a conscious decision, or do do you think that's something that will be addressed down the road, or is that just free market? Oh, no. That is actually a very natural outcome because we're talking about different types of rights. So we have this unusual arrangement in the law where for record labels and artists, they have a compulsory license for their performance right. But for songwriters and music publishers, they have a compulsory license for their mechanical reproduction right. Everywhere in the world, in the history of the music industry, there has been an unusual or I should say just different arrangement when it comes to performance rights. Performance rights have a history and a tradition of paying the creators directly and not through their publisher or their label. So when SoundExchange was created, it was created to be a performance right organization very similar to ASCAP and BMI. And in the publishing world, with ASCAP and BMI and CSAC and GMR, the songwriters are paid directly. They're paid directly by the PRO because it's a performance right. Gotcha. When you're talking about a mechanical reproduction right, then just like with record labels and artists, when they sell copies or they collect an interactive streaming mechanical, it goes through the record label or on the publishing side, it goes through the publisher. So people who have tried to falsely compare this new MLC to SoundExchange and ask the question, why doesn't the MLC give songwriters direct money it's because it's not a performance right. It's a mechanical right. And the entire publishing industry is based on the model of where publishers give advances to songwriters. Songwriters then recoup against those advances, mostly from mechanical reproductions. And so that's why it's different than sound exchange. If we were creating a performance right organization, it would look like ASCAP and BMI and CSAC and GMR and writers would get paid directly. And so that's the distinction. And I think some people have tried to confuse that for not very honorable purposes, but the songwriter groups and the publishers are all agreed that this is the right way to do it. Now, there is an additional thing in this bill, which I'm very proud of, which is that to the extent there is money that can't get matched properly, the law will now require that at least 50% of that money goes to the songwriters. And that is something that overrides the private contracts between songwriters and publishers in a way that the publishers were generous enough to give in this bill to give something to the songwriting community. And so by including songwriters in the governance, by guaranteeing them 50% or more of unmatched money, the writer groups are very happy and supportive of this bill, but no one was suggesting that we should change the nature of mechanical since inception of the right to start paying writers directly from this body and not have the money go through the normal contractual relationships that writers have with publishers. And of course, if a writer doesn't have a publisher, then that writer is a publisher. They're their own publisher, and they would collect the money directly. That's really important for people to understand. I did not actually understand that difference, but now that you've pointed it out, I'm like, oh, of course, yes, it's a performance (laughs) right and not a mechanical right. They're different things. So this 50% of unclaimed money, is there a body that's going to collect that, or is there a, a songwriter organization that's going to collect that? 
Right. So here's how the process will work. The digital companies will now send over all of the money that's owed and all of the reporting of what was played to this MLC. The MLC in the first instance will be using vendors and they will try to match the sound recordings with the owners of the composition. That's what's been broken in the system today. We're hopeful that now that this is going to be done collectively and done transparently and publicly, that we will get a better match rate than we've ever had before. After we've done everything in our power to find the right owners, I expect there's going to be some unmatched money, just as there is at SoundExchange. And when there is unmatched money then, for the first time ever, I believe, in the world, we're going to do something that is revolutionary. We're going to publicly post the list of what sound recordings weren't able to be matched, and we are going to invite anyone to come in, look at that list, and try to help improve the data and claim anything that's theirs. And once that data is made publicly available, it will start a three-year clock. And the reason why three years was chosen is because that's the length of the statute of limitations on copyright rights. And so if you didn't claim your money from a digital service within three years, you could lose your rights. Well, once we have publicly posted what isn't claimed, it will start a three-year clock. But we will be doing everything in our power during that three years to find the right owners. After you get to the end of that three years, if no one has claimed the money, despite the fact that it's been publicly noticed as unmatched money, then the MLC has the ability to distribute that money under a formula that is in the law. And that formula is based on the usage of the actual services that created the unmatched. So for example, if Apple had a million dollars that we couldn't match over a five-year period, let's say, you would take who Apple paid during that five-year period and you would lay over that million dollars under the exact same distribution formula. The only thing that's different now is that normally that money would go to publishers and publishers would be bound by their contracts with their writers about what to do with any monies that came in that were unmatched or sometimes called non-title bound money. But under the law, the publishers now have a legal requirement to share at least 50% of that with their own writers. However, in practice, I expect that's going to be a much higher number because what publishers mostly do is they share unmatched money in the same percentage that they share matched money, which is probably somewhere more in the neighborhood of 75% of the money going to the writer community because most writer contracts have more than 50% going to the writers. And so that basement number of 50% was put in the law just in case you had a situation where a writer didn't have in their own contract something to protect them. The law will now protect them. But in practice, I expect that most contracts will override the law because they will be offering a greater percentage than the 50% to go to the writers. We've now distributed hundreds of millions of dollars in unmatched money from different settlements that we've done, whether they were from the record labels or from the one that we did with Spotify or others. And we know in practice what happens, but I'm glad to have the law now give the songwriters this kind of guaranteed threshold of at least 50% of the money. And as you probably have heard from the songwriter advocacy groups, they're very happy about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I know that that's a positive. So, all right, barring any further surprises, what do you feel, I mean, in just in your best estimation, you know, what do you think the timeline is for the MMA at this point? It's a great question. So there are basically nine steps for this bill to become a law, four in the House, four in the Senate, and one at the White House. In the House, we've gone through the four steps. The bill was introduced, number one. 
It had a hearing, number two. It had what's known as a markup, number three, and it was passed by the House, number four. As I think most people who follow this know, 415 to zero, a unanimous vote in favor of the bill. Then we move to the Senate, where we repeat those four steps. So step number five was the introduction of the bill. Step number six was the hearing on the bill. Step number seven is getting it through the Senate markup process, which we did with a unanimous vote in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And now we're waiting for step eight, which is the passage by the full Senate. Then you go to the White House for president's signature, step nine. So we are between steps seven and eight in this nine-step process. There may be a need to go back to the House for a passage again because the bill might differ a little bit, but that won't be a problem. And so we've got some work to do. Now, there are a couple of different ways to pass this bill. One, the easiest, is by what's known as unanimous consent. And that basically means you circumvent the normal process and you move it quickly because no senator objects. Right now, we have a couple of senators that still may have problems. We have Senator Wyden in Oregon, who has concerns about the pre-1972 relief for artists and labels. We have Senator Gardner from Colorado, who has concerns with regard to XM Sirius that doesn't want to pay artists and songwriters fairly. And we still are working with Senators Cruz and Lee, who had expressed some concerns, but we're hopeful that now that we've worked this out with Blackstone, that we've been able to address their concerns. If we can move it by unanimous consent, I think we'll get this done quickly. If we can't, then we've got to go a little bit harder route, which is getting either floor time, which is difficult to do with the limited time left in the Senate, this Congress, or by attaching our bill to another bill that has to move. We're at 46 co-sponsors right now in the Senate, 23 Democrats, 23 Republicans. I think that number will go up, but we could use some help. So for anyone listening, please make sure your senators are supporting the bill. And if not, please contact them. We have neither of the New York senators right now. And so we've got still some work to do before this bill is done. I don't want to make a prediction of when it will pass, but I feel very good we're going to get it done. And the more we can get co-sponsors, the better chance we have of moving it quickly. So still some work to do, but we're optimistic. It's certainly really quite a watershed for the music industry in terms of the unity. You know, we really haven't seen anything like this in in a really long time in the music industry. I've never seen it. And there are a lot of people that deserve a lot of credit for this. You know, for a while, you had the artist and label community pursuing its own agenda and the writer and publisher and PRO community pursuing a different agenda. And I think the brilliance of this effort was that early on, there were a key group of people that came together and decided that we wanted to pass a bill and that to pass a bill we had to come up with a package that got the support of all the key stakeholders. That meant the broadcasters, that meant the digital companies, that meant the entire music industry. And I think a lot of the previous efforts were fatally flawed because they thought they could somehow pass a bill over the objection of one of those groups. And while you can certainly get people fired up and you can introduce bills and you can fight, you're not going to pass a bill in this environment. And I think that people that pursued agendas that were too ambitious doesn't mean that they were wrong to want what they wanted. It just means that they weren't being strategic about getting a bill passed. And so coming together as a music industry, narrowing the scope of what we wanted to get done so that we could build a coalition of all of the key stakeholders, that was the secret to getting us to where we are. And if this bill passes, then it'll be time to go back and and decide what we fight for next. But it will be a major step forward for both artists and songwriters because there's a lot in this bill to like. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I always say it's a net positive for the music industry. And thanks for everything that you've done to make this happen, David. Well, thank you. I appreciate all of your advocacy as well. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Absolutely. Thanks for being with us today on The Future of What? Was Specs by Lithics. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Blake Morgan. Blake, welcome back to The Future of What. Great to be here. So today we are talking updates to the Music Modernization Act. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges that has gotten thrown up sort of towards the end of this process of passing this bill has been by my own, my very own Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on with Classics Act? Sure. Senator Wyden from your great state of Oregon has thrown up a couple blockades here in what I think we're all trying to do. And it's really disappointing that he's done so. And it's hard to fathom what the moral or ethical argument could possibly be to stand against legacy artists getting paid for their pre-1972 recordings, especially when the fact that they're not getting paid is really a mistake that is being exploited through a loophole in our current system. So this is a really pretty easy fix logistically, and it's an even easier and more important fix you know, morally. So unfortunately, Senator Wyden's behavior and his, his opposition to the, the classics part of the MMA Really, it's difficult to see it as anything other than a brazen acquiescing to his donor base. And that's, that's disappointing. I do feel that he really got knocked back with his first round of rejections by the response from those of us who let him know <laughs> that we weren't happy. So I'm hoping that he will take that to heart. But his opposition to classics and then his own proposal is really pretty disappointing, bordering on offensive. So we, we certainly hope that he will see the light. Yeah, I've had some conversations with his staffers since I'm a 
a record label in his district, of course, you know, they actually represent us. And it's been just really confusing to me what the exact problem is, because it sounds like what he's objecting to is not that pre-72 recordings should get paid. That's not his objection, right. which is really what the Classics Act says. It just says include the works written before 1972 in the blanket of benefits that everything that's written since 1972 is enjoying. Mm-hmm. But it seems instead like it's a handful of songs written in the 1920s yep. that he thinks will be given extra special treatment because they will be given a longer copyright protection. And really, when I was talking to a staffer, I was like, how many songs do you think we're talking about here? 10? <laughs> like, right, exactly. What's what? Enough to threaten all of civilization. Yeah, exactly. And of course, this has now been characterized mistakenly as, you know, that, that Classics is seeking to change copyright law for the worse because it's giving protection for 144 years to songs. You know, this is as true as Obamacare leading to death panels. Exactly. It's complete nonsense. Right. There are plenty of serious issues in and around music and in and around this bill to talk eloquently, even in objection, in an attempt to move something forward and make it better. And that's why I I say to my Portland friends in music, and they've kind of confirmed how it feels out here, not being in Oregon, which is just, this is hard to to fathom. And unfortunately, it it really feels like what, you know, what we're all sadly accustomed to in politics, which is, you know, the data centers of big tech being built in Oregon hold sway with Senator Wyden. His objection to this feels, like you said, it feels both amorphous and then strangely specific at the same time. (laughs) Really strangely specific, yeah. And also just really not threatening. Like, talk about, I mean, you know, when everybody was looking at the component parts of the MMA, you know, months ago or whenever this whole thing started almost a year ago, Classics was like the no-brainer. Like, Classics was the one that was like, well, of course everyone's going to be on board with Classics because it doesn't do anything except extend protections to these older songs. And to the musicians who deserve to be paid, who are in the you know, final chapters of their life very often, and who are living on Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, while billion-dollar tech companies are still reaping the benefits of being able to play their music. So it's not remotely fair. Right. <laughs> you know, his objection, the classics was the no-brainer to begin with. It's the no-brainer now. Right. It's not like it's become less of a no-brainer. Right, right. It's not fundamentally changed during this long process. You know, the MLC part of the MMA has changed a lot. And there may be more changes to the bill. But classics and AMP, too, as a producer, I'm actually doing your show right now from my recording studio. I'm in the middle of mixing a record. So, you know, getting producers paid is important, too. Right. And that's another no-brainer. So the only head-scratching here going on with classics is Senator Wyden's seemingly disproportionate objection to it. I'm hoping that he's backed off of it. You know, if I had an opportunity to talk to Senator Wyden or his staff, you know, what I would want to say is 415 members of the House of Representatives voted with a thumbs up for this bill, and it was voted unanimously out of the uh, Senate committee. So you really have to ask yourself, are you going to be the person who decides to stop this up when hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people are counting on what is in this bill to help change their lives for the better. Because that's really what this is. There isn't a huge conglomerate of people in the United States Senate who are standing up against this bill, certainly not against the classics part. So I really hope Senator Wyden takes that to heart, which is that he would really be standing in a headwind. And that would be inside Congress. Outside Congress, I think the headwind will be even greater. And I'm sure my disappointment will not be, I won't be alone in my disappointment 
it just doesn't seem democratic or fair. Yeah. So again, I really hope that he sees the light. He's a very smart guy who I believe, as I believe with every member of Congress, even though it sounds like I'm blowing smoke, I really do believe this. You know, all the times I've been to the Hill, I never met anyone there who wasn't honestly a patriot, who wasn't trying to help our country and the people who live in it. So if he's really committed to that, then I think his position on classics is hard to fathom, and I hope it changes. Yeah, and I think it's important that we're talking about it. I wanted to talk to you to make sure to get a songwriter voice into this episode as well, because, you know, this is a Portland show. We make it in Portland, Oregon, and so the majority of people who listen to it who live in Oregon, you know, you all have the obligation and opportunity to pick up your phone and call your senator and make your voice heard on this issue. Absolutely. I mean, classics literally just doesn't make sense. Like, if we sat here for 10 more minutes, we might be able to sort of explain, like, what the objection is Mm -hmm. to it. But it's really, it's just really hard to understand. It's like, who cares whether a handful of songs that were written in the 20s get paid on for 12 extra years or something? It's like, really, I mean, it's just really small numbers. It's really bizarre. Anyway, Blake, you're a delight to talk to you as always. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for being with us again on The Future of What? Anytime, Portia. Thanks so much.
That was Altamont by Horsefeathers. Support for the future of what comes from Marmoset. Marmoset is an independent, full-service music agency that specializes in meticulously curating rare, vintage, and emerging independent artists, bands, and record labels, and representing them for music licensing. Marmoset also boasts an accomplished original music production team that works directly with independent artists, bands, and record labels to craft original music, soundtracks, and scores for any creative medium imaginable. Learn more at marmosetmusic.com. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Daryl Friedman of the Recording Academy. Daryl, welcome back to The Future of What? It's always great to be on your podcast, and I love to be on and listen to Future of What. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, so today I I started this morning thinking I was just going to do a nice routine update of all of the challenges that we've faced to date on the Music Modernization Act when I open my email and I discover there's a brand new one. (laughs) (laughs) It's Washington. There's always a new challenge every day. Wow. So I think you're uniquely positioned to talk to us about this. So this is a new thing. Sirius XM and Music Choice have come out of the woodwork with a last-minute opposition to the classics portion, which I have to tell you, Daryl, a year or more ago when we were all starting this process out, I really thought the classics was the no-brainer. I thought that was the one that was going to just fly through and no one was going to have a problem with. You mean you didn't think that someone would object to paying our older legacy artists who contributed so much to American history and music, giving them a fair shake? Yeah, well, somebody <laughs> did, <laughs> and it's serious like them. And I would say it's it's not new opposition. They have been opposing the bill. What we've seen in the last few days is both SiriusXM and Music Choice, another music provider, are beefing up their corporate lobbying efforts in Washington by each hiring a new firm to oppose the Music Modernization Act. Huh. Now, you have to help me understand this because I am a constituent of Ron Wyden's, you know, here in Portland, Oregon. And I have spoken to his office and we have gone over his objection to classics. And to me, it's been really hard to understand because as far as I can tell, what he's objecting to is that there's a handful of songs that may get a slightly longer copyright protection than they would normally get if the MMA passes. But really, we're talking about a handful of songs. I mean, songs written in the 1920s and 30s, maybe a few. It's just, it seems like it's much ado about a very small amount. So to now be facing another challenge to this, what is it about classics that's vulnerable, do you think? Well, just to be clear, the classics provision is part of the overall Music Modernization Act. It really is the part that deals with pre-72 recordings, because prior to 1972, the sound recording, the work of the artist and the producer, wasn't federally copyright protected. It was protected in a lot of different state law. And in 1972, the federal government gave sound recordings, the recordings themselves, not the underlying song, which of course had a copyright prior to that, but the recordings themselves got a copyright in 72. And therefore, there's this legal ambiguity about when the digital services who pay digital performance right to play the songs, does that count? Do they have to pay for the pre-1972 works. We believe they do, but there's been legal ambiguity, and now this law 
would sort of settle that ambiguity. And the law is even supported by people who would be paying for that music, like Pandora, like the Digital Media Association that represents a lot of the digital music services. So when you say you don't really understand Senator Wyden's objections, it's a perfectly reasonable position to take because there really should be no objection to this. What he's concerned about is a very nuanced, really inconsequential aspect of the law that moves some of the state copyright into federal protection. But that copyright has always been there. So it really doesn't change anything in terms of which recordings are protected and for how long. But for some reason, he's got this in his head. And I think it's just going to take constituents like you. And there are people here in Washington who are having good conversations with him as well. To make sure he understands the importance of this bill is really great. This is about the legacy artists. This is about the artists who have contributed to the the foundation of American music, getting their fair share, getting paid. And so we think in the end, Senator Wyden will realize that he'll release his concerns and we'll get this bill passed. And how about the Sirius XM and music choice objections or, or they're beefing up their legal teams? You know, do you feel that there's an aspect of classics that's vulnerable to that type of an attack? Well, they're basically concerned about that each one is concerned about a different provision. Sirius XM is concerned about the pre-72 provision that we just discussed. Music Choice has a different concern, which is that because they're an older service, that Music Choice, if you, you know, have a cable cable system in your home, you if you have those, those channels in the end of the system with the blue screens that have different genres, those are the Music Choice channels. And they've been around for a while, prior to internet radio, prior to satellite radio prior to a lot of the internet radio services that we have today. So they were grandfathered in to get their business off the ground with a rate standard that actually gives them a below market rate that they pay the artists. Now, keep in mind, these services often have to go to a copyright royalty board and judges have to determine the rates. And so the judges are instructed by the law to use certain standards to determine those rates. Music Choice has a, an old standard that's below market. And what we're asking for is that everybody play by the same rules. In every other aspect of law, people use basically a fair market standard. So the judges, when they're trying to figure out what's the fair rate, they look at the marketplace and they look to see what a willing buyer and a willing seller in a free market would set as the rate, and that's what they use. What Music Choice has is sort of a grandfathered in below market rate, and they would, of course, like to preserve that. So Music Choice is lobbying on that provision, where Sirius is primarily lobbying on the pre-72 stuff. So, okay. (laughs) (laughs) We got that clear. Okay. (laughs) How do you feel? I mean, you guys, Recording Academy has been in the thick of this, you know, since the very beginning. How do you feel we are positioned right now in terms of the passage of this bill? Like, how optimistic are you feeling about where this is going? I actually feel great about it. I feel very optimistic. And I feel like this is one of those stories, it's almost like a Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of story where even though we know how much money and corporate interest there there is in Washington, we have seen time and time again that when creators raise their voices, it overpowers the sort of traditional influence industry in Washington, all of those corporations and all of those highly paid lobbying firms that they, that they hire. So I feel great about it. I mean, even in the last week, you've seen songwriters just engage on social media over a completely different issue and got that issue resolved just because they were so engaged. We have to keep that momentum up, hopefully not for the rest of the session, but we will be ready for the rest of the session if it needs to be. And as long as the creators stay engaged every day, calling their congressmen, their senators, staying on social media, 
doing everything they can to keep the issue alive, I'm feeling very confident that we'll get this bill passed. That's excellent. That was Mope Around by Wimps. You're listening to The Future of What. After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Richard Burgess of A2IM. Richard, welcome back to The Future of What. Thank you so much, Portia. It's so nice to be here. So today we're going to update everybody on where we're at with the Music Modernization Act, because the last time we talked about this, it's been a few months, several things have changed. So do you want to give us a quick rundown of, of what's changed with the MMA? Well, we had the resounding victory of getting through the House with a 415 to 0 unanimous vote. And so that was very exciting, and everybody was really powered up and figuring that things would go pretty easily in the Senate, although things are always are a little bit more tricky when you get to the Senate. So anyway, we did get bogged down when we got to the Senate. There were quite a few things happening. There have been a bunch of amendments presented and some hiccups along the way. And it looks like we're sort of working our way through those now. So I think the general vibe is that things are more optimistic in the Senate than they were, say, 10 days ago. But there are still some problems to resolve. Yeah, and in particular, CSAC and their parent company sort of rose up and created an objection. 
very recently, and then that turned around. Yeah, I mean, what happened there was that the MLC, the Music Licensing Collective, the way that it's all structured and the vendors and everything threatened to put Harry Fox out of business, basically. If it was given to one vendor, they felt that this was going to threaten their business. And they'd bought their business from NMPA a little while back. So there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of negative press, a lot of behind-the-scenes negotiations. And in the end, it seems like it's being worked out now. And I think the solution is going to be somewhere along the line of the potential for multiple vendors, which I think was always a possibility anyway. Some people are kind of negative on that idea. They think it's not a good idea. But if it allows the bill to move forward, it seems like a good solution to me. So it seems like that has resolved itself now. And, you know, there'll be a whole RFP process and they'll be part of it, I guess, which is what they wanted, really. So has anything changed in your view with regard to how this bill affects the independent labels so far? No. Well, it depends where these remaining amendments go. So the the CSAC situation didn't really affect independent labels directly, but the Wyden Amendment is problematic for independent labels because that threatens to push the Classics Act out of the MMA. You know, he's been pursuing the questions about the Classics Act and the idea that it's just an excuse to extend copyright, and that was never the intention. And I know that a number of compromises have been proffered to him. And I don't know where that stands at the moment, except that, as far as we know, he's still kind of talking about his alternative, I think, access is what he's calling it, which would basically be like a federalization of pre-72 copyrights. But there's a proposal for a rolling process of allowing things to go into the public domain. It's complicated. It implicates, you know, business for a lot of people, and it could cause certain people to lose significant amounts of money, which, of course, is always a concern. So the puzzling thing is why he's doing this, because it doesn't appear that there's any stakeholder that is really asking him to do this. The songwriters aren't looking for it, and the labels aren't looking for it. So it's just a puzzle as to why he's pursuing this course of action, and it would be just much better if he would just drop it and let things go forward. Our side is prepared to compromise on the length of copyright as far as I'm aware. And I think that would be the best solution. What else is going on? So, I mean, from your perspective, the MMA is, you know, we're all sort of all in the same boat still where we really hope that the MMA is going to pass because we think that it's going to be net positive for the industry as a whole, correct? Correct. Net positive is the best way to put it. You know, it's not perfect. There's things that you look at and you say, I wish that wasn't quite like that, but it's pretty close to impossible to get anything through Congress that's exactly what everybody wants. You know, it's just people's interests are so divergent that it's very difficult to get. But yes, right now it's net positive. What we don't want to have happen is we don't want to have the recording provisions stripped out. And so the recording provisions, you know, the Classics Act is one of the recording provisions, and that's threatened right now by the Wyden proposed amendment. And then we've now got Sirius XM and Music Choice going to their senators. So we, we just had Music Choice going to the Pennsylvania senators where they're based. And I think Sirius's parent company is going to their senators in Colorado to object to the willing buy, willing seller provision. Point of fact, it's hard to understand why they're doing that because in the last CRB, the SDARS 3, a satellite rate setting hearing that just 
finished not that long ago, the final rate settlement wasn't based on the 801B standard that is provided for. So it was basically a willing buyer, willing seller settlement. So it's hard to know why they're objecting to this, really. But willing buyer, willing seller is a much better basis for the recording industry, for the, for the recording side of our industry. And we really don't want that to be thrown out. And then music choice, I mean, they just have such an incredible break that they're grandfathered in on a rate that they just shouldn't be getting. And they're objecting on a number of issues through their senators. But, you know, hopefully we'll stand our ground and we'll be able to get those provisions carried through with the MMA. This has always been the concern is that at the end of the day, the classics, the willing buyer, willing seller would get stripped out of the bill and it would just go through as a publishing bill and then we would we would have supported it and, and, and gained nothing at all. On the label side? On the label side, yeah. Right. So leaving aside the MMA, the other big piece of legislation that the independent labels have been happy to support in the past is the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act, which I don't understand exactly how Congress works. It's possible that that bill is now dead and it would have to be reintroduced under a different name, you know, in the future. But basically the negotiations between labels and broadcasters to get a performance royalty for terrestrial commercial radio. Where do you feel that negotiation is at? Because I know those negotiations continue forever. It doesn't matter if there's a bill in Congress or not. That's right. So the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act was really a combination of a terrestrial right the willing buyer, willing seller provision, the AMP Act, which is the provision for producers. And so it was, a, it was a big bundle of different things. So since we've taken the AMP Act and put it in the MMA, we've taken the willing buyer, willing seller out. Oh, and the other, the other one was the Classics Act. We've taken the Classics Act and put that in the MMA. One of the big concerns from the recording side was that it leaves the terrestrial rights sort of naked, like it has to go through on its own. And... We already know that that is facing a tough fight from the broadcasters. But we are in negotiations with the broadcasters. We are meeting with them regularly. We just met with them. And I wouldn't characterize it as being a hugely successful meeting, but I would say some progress was made. It's a slow, painful process. The problem is that you know they haven't paid anything to artists or labels for 98 years. You know, radio started in 1920. So for 98 years, they've been playing music for free and they've been selling advertising against our music. And the last time I looked, they were making close to $11 billion a year from music radio. And you characterize that again, or cast that against the fact that we make about just under $8 billion a year for making the music. They make more money than we do yeah. for playing it. And yet we make the music, right. you know, so it's, it kind of doesn't make any sense. But you can understand they got this exception in the law a long time back, and to give it up would cost them a lot of money. It's not fair that they won't give it up. It's not fair that they don't pay musicians uh, and singers and, and labels, but they, they don't. So the fight continues, really. I think the big question right now is whether it matters to us, because everything's moving over to digital now. And, and of course, you know, in the negotiations, they tend to contest that. But you can see that more and more people are listening on smart speakers. And when you listen to 
a music radio station on a smart speaker, you're not listening to AM, FM radio. You're listening to a simulcast of AM, FM radio, and therefore it's a digital stream, and therefore we get paid at current digital rates, mm. which are acceptable to us. Sneaky. So, sneaky, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so if everybody says, well, you know, I mean, if people do what they are doing, which is continue to move more and more over to digital, so you listen to radio on your phone or you listen to radio on your smart speaker, then Aretha Franklin does get paid every time you hear the song Respect, whereas on AM, FM radio, she doesn't. Otis Redding gets paid because he wrote the song, but she doesn't get paid because she sang it. And the label doesn't get paid. In that case, it's Atlantic Records. They don't get paid either. But on smart speakers, on your phone, on any digital form of transmission, we get paid. So, you know, it's quite possible that as digital dashboards move into cars, you know, there's not five buttons or six buttons on, on your radio anymore with your five favorite stations. There's hundreds of icons that you can access, you know, any kind of streaming music or any other kind of streaming anything for that matter. And it's quite possible that less and less people will listen to terrestrial radio. And, and there's plenty of evidence that that's actually happening. I mean, I believe, you know, some radio stations are seeing a severe diminishment of business right now. And we don't wish that on them. So the deal that we're offering is a deal, you know, to smooth the way for them into digital, but we're not really close to a, an acceptable deal yet. Right. It's so interesting how in the music industry, I would say this on the show, that technology kind of leads the way and then, you know, legislation has to catch up. That's right. That's how we've sort of always been. <laughs> the music industry has always been a little bit, I don't want to say the victim totally, but certainly we've been at the mercy of changes in technology. Well, to some extent, I think that's our fault because we're not ahead of the game, you know, and you see, I mentioned this in my last book, The History of Music Production, that, you know, the MP3 was invented in 1988. The first MP3 player came out in 1997, but we actually didn't do anything concrete to head off something like Napster happening. So by 99, you know, we still weren't making music available digitally in any really acceptable form. And so Sean Fanning did it, but unfortunately he did it without licensing the music and he did it for free. And today we're still living with the consequence of that because then, you know, they shut down Napster and then we had Morpheus and Grokster and LimeWire and BitTorrent and, and now we still have YouTube that pays way below market rates because they started out basically as a pirate. You know, they started out just putting music out and not paying for it and not paying adequately for it. So, you know, it, it, to some extent we're culpable in that because we haven't dealt with the technology. I think it's something, boys, you know, with A2IM, we, we try to look at the new technologies and make sure that we're at least aware of what the implications are and make that known to our members so that we at least have the opportunity to react in time. Because once something gets established, it's really, really difficult to get things changed. And then you've got, you know, another organization that has a vested interest in things staying the way they are. So, you know, the DMCA, as much as it gets uh, bad rap now because of the safe harbor, was actually a major win for the music industry in getting that through in the late 90s. And we wouldn't be getting paid at all if it wasn't for that. Right. It's important that we remember that. Well, Richard Burgess from A2IM, thank you so much for being with me on The Future of What today. Thank you so much, Portia. It's always a pleasure. 
And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Lithics, Horse Feathers, Wimps, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>